Good morning. First Corinthians chapter seven, verses one through nine. That is our text. I hope you will follow along either in your Bible or on your device or with the transcript. You can get the transcript at transcript.calvaryhanford.com. Either for your help in studying or to see how many mistakes I make. So that's the text, the topic. Some of the believers in Corinth were professing abstinence from sex, even though they were married. The title of our message, The Abstinence-Minded Professors. Have a, have a word of prayer. Father, uh, I, I don't know that this is a controversial text, but it's certainly an oft-misunderstood portion of Scripture. Having said that, Lord, um, we want to approach it with humility and seek to understand it in a way that puts it in its context first, but that also has it meaningful to us as Christians who desire to glorify you in and through and with our lives. Guide and direct us as our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. One may find a woman so stubborn and thick-headed it means nothing to her, though her husband fall into sexual immorality ten times. Then it is time for the man to say, if you are not willing, another woman is. If the wife is not willing, bring on the maid. But this only after the husband has told his wife once or twice, warned her, and let it be known to other people that her stubborn refusal may be publicly known and rebuked before the church. If she still does not want to comply, dismiss her. Let an Esther be given to you and allow Vashti to go as King Ahasuerus did. Who made that outrageous outburst, appealing to the petulant behavior of a pagan Old Testament king as biblical justification? Well, let's just say, ladies, be wary if your husband suddenly wants to take you to a Lutheran church. <laughs> the great reformer himself, Martin Luther, was serious about his sexual satisfaction. No disrespect intended to Lutherans. As far as I know, this is not what they currently teach. The Puritans were serious about sexual satisfaction. If a Puritan man did not frequently or adequately perform what they called husbandly duties, the consequences could be severe. One such man, James Matlock, was accused before the church of denying conjugal fellowship to his wife. He was excommunicated from the church. Think of it. If we were Puritans, instead of a weekly prophecy update, we'd have a frequency update. Well, I think we'd have one, and then we'd be done as a church. These are decisions couples ought to make on their own. You need principles, not policies, especially not policies set by others in the church or by the surrounding culture. Where do believers derive these outrageous ideas? Mostly from the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we are today. Our text does touch on these and other matters, but it does it in a way that encourages you to think spiritually rather than issue ultimatums. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, if you're married, it's spiritual to enjoy intimacy. And number two, if you're single, it's spiritual to enjoy celibacy. So let's take a look at the married in verses one through six. Take a peek at the end of verse one. It says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Who said that? Well, not Paul. It was a saying that was being circulated in the church at Corinth. Paul was writing to correct it. Where did the believers, at least some of them, get such an idea? 
Well, let me suggest where it might have originated. We don't know exactly, but this makes sense to me from all the biblical data that we have. So first, thus far in 1 Corinthians, we've had two references to angels. This will make sense in a minute. Paul spoke of he and the other apostles being a spectacle both to angels and to men in chapter 4. And then he said in chapter 6 that in the future we will judge angels. Going forward in this letter, there's going to be another mention of angels in chapter 11. We'll read, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And we're going to talk about what that means when we get there. But for now, I just want to establish that the behavior of angels was of particular interest to the believers in Corinth. They believed that they were being watched over by angels, and they made reference to this. Second, you'll recall from our earlier studies that the believers were dividing into groups. Some said they were of Paul, some said they were of Apollos, some said they were of Peter, and there was even another group who claimed to be of Jesus. Because there was an of Peter group, scholars think it likely that the big fisher of men had visited the church in Corinth. Obviously, he would share with them some of the teachings of Jesus that he heard personally over three and a half years. And it's not a stretch to think that he shared marriage teachings of Jesus with the believers. In any generation, marriage is a big topic, especially marriage among believers and how to make it work. So what if the of Peter and the of Jesus groups knew Jesus teaching that, and I quote, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Coupled with the fact that Jesus was celibate, it would go a long way toward explaining why some of them were advocating abstinence in marriage. Why not be like Jesus and the angels right now? Why wait for eternity? If there's no marriage or giving in marriage in heaven, wouldn't it be more spiritual to live that way now? Wouldn't that be kingdom living here and now? So that was the argument. I'm not sure if that's how they derived at it, but that is a biblical way of coming to that conclusion. However, they're wrong, and we're going to see why, but we want to keep this in mind because it'll help us to not misunderstand Paul if we remember the context of his remarks. So let's get into it. Verse 1, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Chapter 7 begins a new section in which Paul answers comments that they made or questions that they asked him in a letter he received from them. He'll comment on the following subjects in weeks to come. Marriage, food offered to idols, spiritual gifts, the resurrection of the dead, and the missionary offering for the Jews. To touch a woman was a polite Greek idiom for sexual intimacy. It's become popular to use crude language in Bible teaching. You may not know this. It uh, depends on who you listen to and why. But a lot of the younger, trendier uh, Bible teachers have begun to use uh, rough language. One popular preacher earned the nickname the Cussing Pastor. That'd be great. What a great podcast that is, huh? I, hey, you need to subscribe to the Cussing Pastor. You can't beep, believe this guy's talking about. <laughs> all I know is that Paul wouldn't want to be labeled the Cussing Apostle. That's because all of our speech ought to be seasoned with grace. I think the argument is, well, we need to connect with the culture. There's a, a gap between how we talk and how the culture talks. Agreed, we have our own terminology. 
If I'm talking to a, a, a group of people that are mostly non-believers, I don't say, well, no, let, uh, your propitiation, that's the thing that we want to get to today. And it's like, wh what is this guy talking about? That obfuscates the situation totally. <laughs> I love that word because I didn't know what it meant. Some guy used it at Gino's uh, college graduation. And it means to make things confusing, but the word itself makes things confusing. But anyway... The culture we're trying to connect to, we need to be different from that culture. Not weird different, not prude different, but weird is not what they're looking for. They're looking for us to be different and to have a higher standard and to have some purity and to have some morality. And so we don't need to get down there in the mud uh, with them. Jesus certainly didn't. He hung around sinners, but he didn't sin. Uh, you can't imagine Jesus using crude language, can you? And by the way, when you're evaluating, I was going to say judging, but when you're evaluating ministries and ministers, close your eyes and imagine if what they're saying is something, and, and the way they're saying it is something that Jesus would do or say, or the Apostle Paul. And it'll weed out a lot of really weird, you know, screaming and shouting and stuff that seems to be animated and anointed, but you can't, ima you can't imagine Jesus doing the Sermon on the Mount as a Pentecostal, can you? can you? Can you even imagine? Blessed are the pure, I say the pure in heart, amen? Preach it, brother. It's ridiculous. It's insane. I love doing stuff like that. I don't know where I am now, but anyway. It may have been mostly the wives that were gravitating towards celibacy. In the previous chapter, the Corinthians were defending, visiting prostitutes. How much more would they be apt to consider prostitutes if their wives were withholding sex? Nevertheless, verse 2, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. One paraphrase of this verse reads, it's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. It's good for a man not to touch a woman and vice versa if you're unmarried. That's the idea. If you're married, it's wrong to think of abstinence as more spiritual. It's normal and therefore spiritual to enjoy sexual intimacy in your marriage. Notice Paul says his own wife, her own husband. A biblical marriage is one biological man, one biological woman. They're heterosexuals in a monogamous covenant of companionship that is to last until the death of one spouse. I should add that if you are in Christ, you are to marry a believer. There are biblical grounds for divorce and then subsequent remarriage in the Lord, but we're not talking about that here. Verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Paul again chose modest words. Affection means, or it can mean, according to Strong's concordance, conjugal duty. It is due in the sense that it is expected by a spouse as part of a healthy and normal marriage. To unilaterally decide it is more spiritual to quit rendering such physical affection, that's not spiritual. And so that's what was happening in Corinth. Uh, one of the spouses in a marriage was following this teaching of being uh, like the angels, and they decided it was more spiritual to not have sex, even if you were married, 
and they were making the decision by themselves unilaterally, uh, leaving out their spouse. Verse four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Honey, your body belongs to me. I'm having a sexual urge. You have no say in the matter. If you don't satisfy me, then I'm going to tell Calvary Hanford during the weekly frequency update, <laughs> and you'll get disciplined publicly by Pastor Gene. If that doesn't work, I'm going to dismiss you and either have fun with the maid or find someone like Queen Esther who can satisfy me. Does that sound about right? Is that how you read this verse? Of course not. I made it up. I exaggerated to make a point. A lot of people want to make just that kind of application of this text. Listen to this. This is from a commentary on the Song of Solomon by a well-known Bible teacher. It is never right to withhold sex from your marital partner. You not only hurt your partner, but you also hurt yourself. If one partner needs it, the other is to respond willingly and enthusiastically. He goes on to talk about how if you obey God, even though you're not in the mood or you have a headache, if you obey God, it'll be blessed because you uh, are acting in obedience. Sadly, this guy had to step down from his ministry because he got a little too enthusiastic with a woman who wasn't his wife. And I'm here to tell you that if your philosophy of sex is that you have to have it whenever you feel like it, you're going to have problems in life. So is that what Paul meant? Well, here's a quote from a much different perspective. Does the fact that we shouldn't withhold ourselves from our spouse mean they have the right to demand sex from us? Well, the answer is no. In marriage, Christ calls husbands to love their wives like he loved the church. Jesus' love for his bride was utterly selfless in that he gave himself up for her. This call to love unselfishly extends to our sexual relationship within marriage. We should, as Paul exhorted, have the mind of Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Selfish sex within marriage can be just as sinful as sex outside of the marriage, since it is always a way of laying our spouse down for us instead of laying ourselves down for our spouse. So, which approach sounds more like Jesus? Well, obviously the second. Remember, Paul was addressing spouses who made a unilateral decision to no longer be intimate. He was simply saying they don't have the authority over their own bodies to make that decision. Here's another way of looking at it. If a spouse has authority over his or her spouse's body, then they can tell them what not to do as well. So let's play this out in a scenario. For the sake of realism, the husband will be the demander. He comes home from work. He says, babe, I'm having an urge to have sex right now. I'm exercising my authority over your body to satisfy me. The wife answers, I'm in the middle of cooking dinner. So I think I'm going to exercise my authority over your body and say no. The husband responds, wife, Jesus said you are to submit to my authority. I'm the head of the household. To which the wife answers, and Jesus is your head, telling you to love me the way he loved the church and put aside his authority to minister to the church. Checkmate. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I just gave your wife all that ammunition. But anyway, <laughs> the sad thing is, is that this verse has been abused to create all kinds of mischief in marriage. Uh, True story, uh, we were dealing with a young couple many, many, many years ago at Calvary San Bernardino. I don't think they'd ever even come to the church, but they would call for, or she would call for counseling. 
Uh, her husband admittedly was a little off. I had met him once or twice and, and he needed medication. But um, one day he read these verses and decided that he was gonna rape his wife because she owed him sex. And so she called me after it happened and I said, I called the police and he got arrested and thrown into a mental institution. And uh, I visited him there and he was so scared and I was so happy. It was just great. He was, he was like, get, you gotta get me out of here. And I said, hey, I got you in here. But uh, anyway. That's a longer story, but it was, uh, it was sad. It was tragic, and that's how people read this. Paul was talking to the spouse who has adopted the teaching that they are more spiritual by withholding sex. Paul was telling them they don't have the authority in marriage over their own body to make that decision. Warren Wiersbe wrote, keep in mind that Paul is replying to definite questions. He's not spelling out a theology of marriage in this chapter. It is necessary to consider as well what the rest of the Bible has to say about this important subject. Paul wasn't addressing the question of how frequently a married couple ought to be intimate. He wasn't teaching that all sexual urges must be immediately fulfilled. He wasn't suggesting there is no such thing as self-control. He was saying that married couples are responsible to reach mutual, not unilateral decisions about everything, including their intimacy. Verse five, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul anticipated that some of the believers, whether they were affected by this abstinence teaching or not, might decide to abstain from sex as a fast before the Lord, give up sex for Lent kind of a thing. In that case, both spouses must consent to the terms of such a thing in order to avoid sexual temptation. Again, the emphasis is on consent, meaning mutual decision-making. So let's talk about self-control. There are seasons in marriage when intimacy won't be possible. Can you say deployment? If you're military, you're gonna be separated from your spouse for months at a time. Self-control is the answer and it's made possible by the indwelling Holy Spirit. But doesn't Paul indicate that we would lack self-control and fall into sin? Paul said those who fast from sex in marriage might stumble their spouse by challenging their ability to control themselves and set them up for sin. Again, this is in the context of a marriage where one spouse says, we're not gonna have sex anymore. Obviously, the other spouse is gonna have problems with self-control because they got married partly to deal with those urges. And even if you fast for a time, it could set them up to stumble. In other words, by trying to be spiritual, one spouse might be tempting the other spouse to sin. Abstinence or declaring a fast from intimacy cannot be your decision acting alone. Your sexual appetite is unlike your other appetites in that it involves your spouse. Verse six, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. There is no commandment to abstain from intimacy. There would be if it was something that could make you more spiritual. Now, you can't help, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. You can't help but believe that what they're telling you is that it's more spiritual to be celibate because the most spiritual people in their uh, system, priests and nuns, are supposed to be celibate. Uh, and, and so, you know, I remember thinking, wow, that's great. I wanted to be a priest until I got to puberty and then I thought, no, it's not gonna happen. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's a weird thing. But there are other religions, other movements, and sometimes I think even in the darkest places of our own heart, we think, oh, there's sex, you know, there, it's probably better not to have sex. 
Stop thinking that way. It'll get you in trouble. And so that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying there's nothing more spiritual about it. Yes, in heaven, things will be different. A lot of things will be different. I think I joke with you, but it might be true. In heaven, you might be a fruitarian. Do you know what that is? It's somebody who only eats fruit. There's vegans, vegetarians, and fruitarians. How do I know that? Because there's a tree of life in the book of the Revelation that gives forth 12 fruits each in its season, and you're probably not going to be killing anything in eternity. It doesn't really fit, does it? Hey, this is all glory. Got it. I don't see it. Ah, it's bleeding out over there on Golden Street. You know, it just, that's probably not going to happen. And so there's a lot. So why don't we just eat fruit now? Well, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to eat all the beef I can then leading up to that because I don't particularly like persimmons or whatever. But anyway, that kind of a thing. So yeah, that's the argument. We should be fruitarians because that's what they were in the Garden of Eden and that's what we're headed towards or whatever we know about eternity. And so Paul says, yeah, that's just, uh, he doesn't use this word, but I will. That's stupid. (laughs) So here's the bottom line on these verses. Sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed in a biblical marriage. It is part of God's design for marriage. You can't make a unilateral decision to abstain from it. There is nothing spiritual about it. Whatever your personal desires might be, you should want to meet the desires of your spouse. Sexual intimacy is a matter for mutual discussion and decision, not demands. And it's certainly not up to me or the church or the elders or a committee to tell you what you should be doing in the bedroom. Now, if you're single, it's spiritual to enjoy celibacy. Was Paul married? Nothing in the New Testament indicates that he was married during the span of his ministry. He almost certainly was married at one time, though. It would have been a disgrace for him to be single when he was Saul, a Pharisee's Pharisee. The description he gives of himself as to his zeal among the Jews presupposes he had a wife at one time. He would never have climbed the ranks of Judaism as a single man. No one stayed single in that culture, in that Jewish culture. It was a disgrace. Just like being a barren woman was a disgrace, being a single man was a disgrace. So what happened to Mrs. Saul? I'm not clear on whether or not a Jewish wife could legally divorce her husband in the first century. But in her case, after Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, I'm thinking the Jewish religious authorities would have strongly urged her to abandon her husband if she didn't become a Christian. Or she may have died, leaving Paul a widower. Either way, Paul had real insight into these issues. We don't want him to come across like the guys who give you parenting advice who've never had children. Don't you? I remember that. When I have kids, they're going to obey. First thing I say, they're going to be right on it because I'm going to be the world's greatest dad. Just get get a phone number, get a contact number, stay in touch with those people, and get with them when their kids... Say, I want to visit you when your kids are three just to get some really wise advice from you while they're pulling out their hair and screaming and doing all that. It's ama- isn't it amazing how a little kid can just ruin your life? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, they're, they're like this big, and it's like, no! What do you mean, no? It's for your benefit. What are you talking about? Sin nature. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. He wished all men were even as he was, and that means single. Why? 
Well, a couple of reasons he'll suggest later in this chapter. One, if you're married, you're just not as free to serve the Lord. You still should serve the Lord, not just at home, but outside the, you know, uh, in the world and in the church, but you're not as free, obviously, because you have other obligations. Uh, you have to live at a certain standard. You have to figure out schools. You have to, I mean, there's just a lot of op, uh, responsibility. And if you're married, you're more affected by persecution when it comes, because though we all love each other, if there's a big difference between somebody's going to shoot you or they're going to shoot your wife and, and try and force you to do something. So Paul was single. And as all single believers should, he practiced abstinence. Sexual activity outside of marriage is immoral. It is sin. But he said something more about his particular case. He said he had a gift. It's the same word that is used for other gifts of the Holy Spirit. Celibacy means you refrain from marriage and from all sexual relations. Celibacy can be a gift, a supernatural enabling given by the Holy Spirit as he sees fit. Uh, now, many of you perhaps do not feel called whatsoever to the celibate life, but you are not yet in the married state. Uh, you're to practice celibacy through self-control. Then Paul says, one in this manner and one in another, that continues his theme that celibacy and abstinence in marriage are not more spiritual than marriage with sexual intimacy. So he says, hey, you should be like I am. I'm celibate. That's great. Or you should or you get married. And they're equal. There's not a difference between them. We have a tendency to think that being celibate is somehow more spiritual. Apparently, another part of the teaching that was going around in Corinth was that if you were unmarried, you should stay unmarried, that it was always more spiritual. And so Paul's going to address that in more depth in the next two verses. He says in verse 8, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them if they remain even as I am. Now, to say it's good to remain single doesn't mean it's better. It's just, it's okay. It just means there's nothing wrong with it, and it can free you up to serve the Lord without other obligations. Let me say this, and, and I could be the only one that feels this way. Oftentimes I say something and people say, really, that's what you think? You're an idiot. But uh, I think, from my observation of different churches uh, over the years, I think Christians tend to look suspiciously on Christian singles. Some, at least, are called to remain that way. And all I mean by that is that we assume that everybody is going to get married because that's normal. And staying single seems abnormal. And I'll tell you, have you ever, maybe you know somebody even right now, and I, I don't want you to think about it, but uh, maybe you know somebody right now, and when you think of them, you say, I guess she's or he is never going to get married. Here they are, 16, and they're still not married. No, I'm just, you know. <laughs> I don't know what the age would be, 28, 32, 41, who knows? And they've never, and you think, wow, are they, are they ever going to get married? Uh, I don't know. And then you, and, and you know them, they're nice people. You don't think they're weirdos, maybe, uh, you know, and so, but it's the expectation that they're going to get married. Some people should stay single. Maybe you get widowed or you're a widower. I'm not saying you shouldn't get married. Maybe you should, but maybe you shouldn't. At least we need to hold it up as an option and, and not pressure people into doing things that they don't want to. And, and so it's equal. You want to stay single? Stay single. We won't think weird things about you. Uh, or we'll try not to. 
Uh, I'm serious, you know, I mean, because being single, it, it would be great. And I know plenty of people after their spouse dies, they, I don't know, maybe then they get the gift of celibacy. Uh, you know, you don't get all your gifts the minute you get saved. And so maybe it's okay for people to stay that way and for us not to push them, uh, you know, into secret dating and things like that. So just be level-headed about that. Then he says in verse nine, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Here's a more literal translation of verse nine. If they're not exercising self-control, let them get married, for it's better to marry than to continue being inflamed with lust. So they were not exercising self-control. Doesn't mean they had to sin, though. It wasn't an excuse. Just the opposite. Paul saying they should exercise self-control by yielding themselves to God. But if they continue to see it as a struggle, it's an indication that you don't have the gift of celibacy. Uh, and, and so this is an important point. And again, I don't want to get crude, but this is what really happens sometimes. I get guys over the years in all the churches I've served in and all the churches I know about, guys come in and they're uh, involved in pornography or they're, uh, they've committed adultery and, you know, their, their wife is sitting there. I'm not saying wives are, never do these kinds of things, but the husband invariably says, my wife is not satisfying me and I, I lack self-control. To which I guess I'm supposed to say, oh, well, if that's the issue, what are you doing here? Just, you know, have fun. Uh, or, or maybe I should do a frequency thing with the wife and say, well, 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Um, that one pastor, that's what he would do because he wrote about it in his book. But you know what the answer is? What Paul is saying is, all right, so have self-control until you get married. Because what is self-control? It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's a baby fruit in your life, but it's a fruit. And so you and I can exercise self-control. Maybe it's hard, maybe it's a struggle, but that doesn't mean we give into it. That doesn't mean it's okay to sin in that area. This teaching that it is good for a man not to touch a woman wasn't working. They should get married because marriage is God's design for those he has not gifted to remain permanently celibate. So maybe God will give you celibacy as a gift. You're going to be free to minister for the Lord with fewer cares and commitments. If he doesn't, it's not spiritual to try in the energy of your flesh to remain that way. Get married or get remarried and enjoy sexual intimacy within the beautiful boundaries of a mutually satisfying Christian marriage. But whatever you do, don't sin. Trust that you can yield to the indwelling Holy Spirit and that you can exercise self-control. Let's pray.